right, all right, and welcome to episode 16 of The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. My name is Christian A. Stetler, and I'm a professor in the social work department at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And uh, this morning, as always, uh, I'm broadcasting live from Ock Bay, just outside of Juneau, Alaska. I always give a little bit of a weather update. And it's funny because I'll talk about Natalia in just a minute, but uh, she's blessing us with her presence from Honolulu. My friend from that lives on Maui uh, visited us with his girlfriend last week, and they were here for like four days. And it was l- literally like the coldest, darkest four days you could ever imagine for like the end of May into June. It l- I know it looks kind of nice out there right now, a little cloudy, but it was r- really dark, cold, and rainy, so I felt bad. But maybe that's the punishment for getting all that sunshine in Hawaii and trying to come visit Alaska. But anyways, uh, like I said, I got a very special guest this week. Natalia is blessing us with her presence all the way from down in the Hawaiian Islands in Honolulu. How's it, Natalia? Good. It's pretty humid over here, but can't complain. Yeah, all that sunshine. Like Where you're at, it's like literally 365 days of sunshine a year. Um, all right. Well, Natalia is our first recurring guest. If those of you that have, uh, you know, been following the podcast, she was here as a as a group of uh, co- of, of uh, guests. I don't know, a couple months ago. So I'm very lucky to have Natalia back. She's a licensed clinical social worker, LCSW, and certified substance abuse counselor who provides harm reduction psychotherapy in Honolulu. Natalia specializes in working with adults who are houseless, actively using substances, and or living with HIV. Natalia started working with these populations in the San Francisco Tenderloin District in 2010 and is a strong advocate for harm reduction services. Natalia enjoys teaching others by taking on uh, social work student interns and by facilitating training such as mental health first aid with the community and the local police department. Uh, so yeah, we're very lucky to have Natalia back with us and look, looking very much forward to talking with you in just a minute, Natalia, but there's a few things we're going to cover first. Uh, So first of all, the critical social worker is supported by the social work department at UAF, the University of Alaska Fairbanks. However, I just want to be clear that any opinions, ideas, uh, anything said by me or Natalia or any of the people that may call in later on, our opinions are our own and we can be opinionated folks. So it's important. If you don't like something that one of us says, I invite you to take it up with us personally. Um, At the end of the podcast, there'll be opportunity to call in or use the chat box, or you can send me an email at castetler at alaska.edu. But what everybody says is our uh, is our own opinion. Um, and I just wanted to go through our mission statement, which says the critical social worker podcast unfolds unique stories and diverse perspectives to foster critical dialogue, empathy and understanding for all listeners through storytelling grounded in social work values. We aim to change ourselves and the world one story at a time. And one of those underlying themes in that mission statement is obviously the idea of telling stories. And we here at The Critical Social Worker believe that each individual is multi-layered with unique life experiences, and we want to help unfold some of those layers through stories that we can learn and grow from, stories that help build critical consciousness. Um, And this this podcast wouldn't be possible in its current form uh, if it weren't for the University of Alaska Fairbanks Department of Social Work. Um, And so I just want to give them a big shout out. It's an excellent program. Uh, I, I'm biased, a little biased, obviously, because I work there, and I did get, I also got my bachelor's in social work from there, from here, and uh, just a couple things I wanted to say is that uh, we already do, we, just to start with, we already have affordable tuition, 
but you can get in-state tuition if you are taking online classes from anywhere in the world, which is, I believe, under $1,000 a class, which is very good in comparison to some of the other online degree programs. And at the, in the BSW program at UAF, you have faculty that give you care and attention, uh, that focus on healing in a way that uh, I have not uh, been able to participate in, in in any of the other programs that I have worked or been a student in. Um, we have a huge focus on indigenous values, indigenous beliefs, indigenous ways of being, of looking at things. Um, we have a huge focus on uh, you know the different Alaska Native individuals and populations across the state of Alaska. So if you're interested in any of those things, then um, Look us up. You could find us just search uh, UAF Social Work on Google, or you can find us on Facebook as well. Um, and if you wanted more info, you could always reach out to me. Uh, what about you? Do you have a story to tell? Are you listening in and thinking that you know you want to come on here and tell a story or talk story with me? Uh, if you do, just reach out to me. Like I said, my email is c a stetler. That's c a s t e t t l e r at alaska. edu. And if you want to support the critical social worker, if you've been listening and you're thinking about how you might be able to support us, the best way that you can do this is just to follow us and tune in and participate in the podcast on Saturdays. And then um, another thing that you can do that would really help would be to go, if you listen on Spotify or Apple, would be to leave us a review, and give us a rating. That would be the most helpful. All right. Now that we got all that stuff covered, I think that it's time we get this conscious party started for real. Hey, yo, everyone, gather around. It's story time. Brought to you by the University of Alaska Fairbanks, Department of Social Work, and the Conscious Party Productions. You are listening to The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. A conscious party. Revolutionizing our minds. Elevating our consciousness. Changing our worlds. Your story. My story. Our story. All right, all right. Well, welcome officially to The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. And this is episode 16, Through the Lens of Empathy, Natalia and the Power of Harm Reduction. So let's begin. uh, Let me begin with the core of our discussion, the story of harm reduction. So if you you don't know about harm reduction, it's a philosophy and then... There may be other ways to define this, which I'll talk about with Natalia, but this is what I've got for you right now. It's a philosophy, a practical and compassionate response to addressing problematic and high-risk behavior. It's about understanding and accepting that for some, substance abuse is a part of their life. So we focus on reducing the harmful consequences of that use rather than forcing a complete and immediate cessation or uh, maybe, you know, forcing somebody to go uh, to be completely sober or clean from drugs before we work with them or help them, which is a requirement in a lot of situations, even like homeless facilities and whatnot. Um, We can see the positive efficacy of of harm reduction in a myriad of ways. Needle exchange programs are one example, where clean needles are provided to prevent the spread of diseases like HIV and hepatitis C. Supervised consumption sites or safe injection facilities are another form of harm reduction, reducing overdose uh, fatalities and promoting safer drug use behaviors. You know, another one that I didn't put on, that I. forgot to mention when I was writing this up is uh, I hear uh, if any of you are familiar with Dr. Carl Hart, he uh, advocates for, I, I can't remember what it's called. Maybe Natalia can touch on this later, but like drug testing. So for example, if you were going to buy drugs, you could get it tested without any fear of repercussion. So you could tell if it was like laced with fentanyl, for example, which is obviously a problem. Um, 
So talk about some of the successes. However, it's important to acknowledge that harm reduction is not universally accepted. And there are those, many of those actually, who resist this approach. Um, critics often argue that harm reduction could inadvertently encourage substance abuse or remove the incentive for individuals to seek treatment and pursue sobriety. And yet studies consistently show that harm reduction strategies neither increase drug use nor deter individuals from seeking treatment when they're ready. Um, so let's look real quick at a case. This one's from Vancouver, British Columbia, and its response to the escalating public health crisis. If any of you ever read any of things from Dr. Gabor Mate in his book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, or um, the new one, The Myth of Normal, he talks about, uh, Van Van a lot about Vancouver's downtown east side. So if you want more context, read those books by Dr. Gabor Mate. So in the late 90s and early 2000s, Vancouver's downtown east side was grappling with a severe public health crisis. The rates of HIV infection and drug overdoses were alarmingly high, and the downtown east side neighborhood considered one of North America's poorest excuse me, was considered one of North, North America's poorest postal codes. The need for solution was pressing and in, came in the form of a revolutionary approach to public health, harm reduction. In 2003, Vancouver launched North America's first legal safe injection facility, known as Insight. The pioneering program was response to the urgent public health needs of the city's marginalized and vulnerable population who were being ravaged by the twin epidemics of HIV and drug overdose. The harm reduction philosophy was at the core of this initiative. Instead of aiming to eliminate drug use completely, Insight aimed to make drug use safer for those who could not or would not stop, providing clean needles and a safe, monitored environment where people could use drugs without fear of arrest. The results were nothing short of impressive. Research showed a reduction in public injection drug use, a decrease in discarded needles, and a lower incidence of HIV and hepatitis C transmission due to needle sharing. Overdose deaths in the area around the facility also dropped dramatically. Moreover, Insight did not just provide a safe place for drug use. It also connected individuals with crucial services, such as housing, education, and treatment programs. It showed that when people are treated with dignity and given access to the resources they need, they are more likely to seek help and initiate the process of recovery when they're ready. Insight's success demonstrated how harm reduction strategies can directly contribute to healthier communities. By focusing on reducing the harm associated with drug use instead of judging or stigmatizing those drugs, Vancouver demonstrated a model that could be replicated in cities around the world struggling with similar challenges. It's a powerful narrative that underscores the impact of harm reduction on individuals and communities, leading to inclusive and safer societies. So as we look to the future, the evolution of harm reduction is critical, especially in the context of ever-changing substance abuse trends and societal attitudes. From enhancing the accessibility of naloxone to to prevent overdoses, to decriminalizing substance abuse, and advocating for policy changes that humanize rather than stigmatize, there are countless ways to push forward the harm reduction agenda. You know, and one example I have is I did my, um, my master's uh, my, for my MSW, I did my practicum at a uh, methadone clinic. And there were some things I didn't agree about how things went down at the methadone clinic. And, um, you know, for example, if everybody got clean off of drugs, then the methadone clinic wouldn't exist anymore. So there's some financial incentive for it to keep going, uh, which I was always, I guess, concerned about, you might say. But just like I was saying with that other instance in downtown Eastside, Vancouver, you know, those uh, people that were using uh, opioids and were coming in for methadone, they had to walk by my office or in the other counselor's office every day. And in order to continue with the program, you know, they were required to meet with us and whatnot. So it put them in line for, 
for help and for services to take care of themselves a little bit better um, and provide them more opportunities, you know, maybe to seek out counseling if they so chose to do. Um, so that's one example. But today I've got the privilege of hearing firsthand. We have the privilege of hearing firsthand experiences and insights on harm reduction from Natalia. Natalia's been working, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> working in the streets, working right in it uh, for a while now. And so, Natalia, I want to thank you for being with us today as we launch into this important conversation. I was wondering if you might just share us the story of how you got into harm reduction. What made you interested in it? Was it did you start at the job or, or what, what made you want to get invested in, in to the idea and the, the methods of harm reduction? Yeah, um, thank you. That was a really great uh, introduction to harm reduction. I think you hit a lot of really good points that, that I'll also discuss as well. But so for me, I... And I think I mentioned this in the last time I was on here. I, I for a long time I knew I wanted to go towards a mental health field, but I did not want to go into substance use. <clears throat> I grew up. Um, I was raised in a town in South Florida called Boca Raton. Um, it's maybe about an hour north of Miami, and um, it's in Palm Beach County. It's pretty. Um, affluent. I, I grew up with a lot of privilege, you know, two-story home, cat and a dog and a pool. Um, and, you know, for those who haven't heard of Boca Raton, I, I know it's in like some movies and stuff. Um, I know it was in the movie Marley and Me. I'm not sure if you've seen that. It's with Owen Wilson and Jennifer Aniston. And it's based on a true story. It's based on a book about a man in South Florida and his Labrador named Marley. Um, and they live in South Florida and they have some sort of incident with the neighbors. And so they moved to Boca because it's safer. Um, if that explains where I live or where, where I grew up. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I really had a lot of privilege. I, you know, I spent a lot of time in like gated neighborhoods that my friends lived in. Um, one of my best friends got like a her parents bought her a brand new car before she even had her license, you know, really nice cars and like the high school parking lot. So anyway, I'm just painting a picture here. Um, but I also, uh, with my privilege, got to travel. Um, I'm first generation American on both sides of my family. So my father and his family is born and raised in France. Um, and my mother is from Peru and South America. Um, her family er, er, migrated to, to L.A. County, which is where I was born. Um, and so I got to, even though I was living in this kind of ritzy town, um, I spent my summers visiting Peru. Um, so I was really exposed to a completely different world. Um, you know, like not really having access to hot water for showers, you know, seeing children on the streets begging you to buy a pen or a lighter or a keychain because you know, there's just extreme poverty. Um, and my mom always uh, talked to me about shoes and how many people in the world don't have shoes. And so that was always like a um, reference point for me and a reminder about how many people in the world don't have shoes. Um, and my dad, you know, him being from France, he, my dad is different. He, he definitely has different perspectives on things. And I, was raised and I still do often listening to his critiques of the United States and American systems and ways of living and philosophies. 
So even though I, I did grow up in this bubble, I was exposed to um, different cultures, different ways of thinking and different um, politics and, and socioeconomic status. Um, and I'm not sure who's listening, who remembers this or, or how where people are, but um, I, I lived in South Florida. It's Palm Beach County in the late 90s to early 2000s. I think I, I left in 2007. And at that time, they had uh, a lot of pill mills going on or all these pain clinics popping up, especially in Broward County, which is the county south of where I grew up. Um, and they were starting to, they were overly prescribing pain medication, which was often uh, opioids. Um, and that's, that's really where this opioid epidemic started. Um, so medications like oxycodone or also known as oxycodone, um, other types of opioids that are known are like morphine, uh, hydrocodone, codeine, which is um, a cough syrup. It's prescribed as a cough syrup, but a lot of people like to drink it. They call it lean or uh, syrup, scissor. They'll mix it with alcohol. So uh, when I was there, there was this sort of like, there was this epidemic going on of, of these pain clinics that were just handing out opioids like candy. Um, and a lot of people got hooked. There was a lot of trafficking. Um, and then they started shutting them down. And um, a lot of people who can no longer access their prescriptions end up turning to heroin, which can be bought on the street um, to, to continue for, for their dependence because they have a, a physical dependence on the substance. So I was very, very lucky not to... I don't think I ever, ever even tried it, but I do know a lot of people from high school um, who have overdosed and died. Um, and I had someone really close to me that was using those substances. So because of my experience with that and just my personal experiences, you know, using drugs and alcohol, I thought that I would never want to go into substance use because it would be too painful, too difficult, too close to home. Um, fast forward to like 2015, I'm here in Hawaii working on my master's. I think this is when you and I met. Um, and my practicum, my internship for the year was at, it was for the hospital. It's, it was considered partial hospitalization treatment. It was a day treatment program um, for people who had what we called a dual diagnosis or co-occurring disorders. So they had, a lot of them had a, a severe serious mental illness, what we call SMI. Um, and most of them also had a substance use disorder. So most of the people that I was working with there had uh, like schizophrenia, bipolar, really severe depression. A lot of them were coming out of the psych ward because they had just uh, had a suicide attempt or, or really strong uh, suicide ideations with like a plan. So that's where I had my internship. It was a really great experience. I, I learned a lot clinically. Um, and I realized that I could actually do substance use treatment. Like it wasn't as difficult as I imagined. Um, and when I graduated, I had a friend of mine, Colton, um, who started working at a different program that also provided that dual diagnosis. 
um, at an outpatient clinic and he, you know, basically hooked me up with a job there. Um, I got really, really lucky. You know, I went in for an interview and they hired me on the spot and, and that's where I started working. So that's where I got a lot of my experience of the substance use treatment. Um, and I worked there for a couple of years. That's where I got my hours to get my CSAC, where I, I became a certified substance abuse counselor. Um, but I prefer to call myself a substance use counselor. So I joke that I'm a CSUC, not a CSAC. Um, and I, so I got my CSAC there. I got the hours. I got a lot of experience. Um, and I really enjoyed it. I really like running groups. I tried my best to make the groups uh, fun and creative and, you know, really try to bring joy into this space as much as possible. And um, after a while, I got bored uh, because treatment is all about routine and structure. And it was just, you know, I needed a little bit more spice in my day. Um, and so, so that was one of the things that happened. And as much as I loved working there, I also started uh, realizing some things that, that I didn't like. I had this like internal conflict going on, um, kind of like you brought up, right? Like the, the financial piece of it. Uh, a lot of people would say that the program cares more about money than it does about the, the patients there which I didn't see um, in my role, but now that I don't work there anymore and I help people uh, apply for treatment, I can see why they would say that and why they would feel that way. Um, but there was just some things that, that I, I didn't like, you know, this was what we call, or what I call abstinence-based program, right? The, the assumption is that people are going there to get completely off of drugs and alcohol. They have to remain abstinent while they're there, they're getting drug tested on a regular basis. And if they are failing any of those drug tests, um, then they get kicked out. And so for me, um, apart from this, you know, I, I've heard people say that drug tests are helpful for, you know, people in recovery have said that the drug tests have, have helped them. But uh, there's this, I don't know. To go take someone into a bathroom and watch them pee just really seems dehumanizing to me. But one of the things that, that I that really bothered me was that most of the people that were there were court ordered. Um, I would say about 90 percent of the people in treatment were there because they wanted to avoid going to jail. It was either treatment or jail. And so they would rather be in treatment than jail. But they don't really want to be in treatment. Um, Sure, ideally, they want to get off of all drugs and, and alcohol, but the the what we call internal motivation wasn't necessarily there. And I remember I used to run this one group on the stages of change um, and I would ask I would ask the group, you know, if if your probation officer called you today and said um, your charges are getting dropped, your case is getting closed, we're clearing your record you don't have to go to treatment anymore, how many of you would come back tomorrow? And I found that most people were not raising their hand, right? Like people didn't really want to be there. And that sucks. And it sucks for people who do want to be there, the few that do want to be there, because they're, it's not easy to go to treatment. It's not easy to try to get off of drugs or alcohol. Um, and to be 
in a cohort, in a group of people who don't want to be there just makes it that much more difficult. Um, so, so that was one of the big red flags for me. And, and I worked with a lot of people too, who would tell me that they just wanted to smoke weed, right? Like if I smoked weed, I wouldn't be smoking meth. Like the, the weed really helps me with the PTSD or with this or that. Um, and because I grew up self-medicating, well, I didn't grow up, but I, I spent some years self-medicating with weed. Um, I understood it. And I, 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 it was hard for me to be like, well, you can't do weed. Or you're going to go to jail, right? Like, it was just not a, a fun role to have. And on top of it, for people who tested positive on their drug tests, I had to call their probation officer and tell them, um, not a fan because I, I don't believe in criminalizing substance use. You know, um, I know you and I have talked about the work of Angela Davis. I definitely consider myself an abolitionist of, you know, not even believing in our incarceration system. So there was just a lot of things there that, that I didn't like. Um, and then also, of course, you know, people relapsing it and then us kicking them out. Um, and it just kind of felt like, all right, well, we're saying that you have this disease um, that you have an illness and you're struggling to manage your disease. And what we're going to do is like tell you, hey, don't let the door hit you on the way out. You know, we would give a referral. But what's a referral? A referral is like a name, you know, and you go figure it out um, as opposed to uh, more of a warm handoff. Right. As opposed to coordinating that care like, hey, you relapse. Maybe this program isn't right for you, but let's swoop you up and put you right into a different program that we think might be better. Um, so that was really, really hard for me was working with people and then seeing them struggle and then us just saying, bye, good luck. So um, I had all these kind of things going on. And um, I remember a, a classmate and friend was posting on social media about it was like a venting about uh, an organization, the nonprofit world. Um, the lack of benefits that we get. And I remember commenting, uh, sort of joking, but being a smart ass that where I work, they don't even throw us a holiday party, let alone like get a 401k, you know? And, um, and Cache actually, who was one of our, uh, one of the, another guests on the, on the last podcast that we did together, um, Cache told me about this agency that was looking for uh, a harm reduction CSAC, um, substance use counselor. And I, I, I'm so grateful for that. <laughs> I'm so grateful for that Facebook conversation and me commenting that because I, you know, I, I looked it up and I opened the job description and it was like, you know, ah, this is for me. Um, and so um, I applied and same thing, right? Just got hired on the spot. You know, these agencies really, really need um, counselors and therapists. Um, and, and it was really hard for them, apparently, to find someone who actually had their CSAC, um, their certification in substance use, um, who, who wanted to do harm reduction. Most of the people who want to do harm reduction don't have their CSAC yet. And the CSAC um, is really the whole certification and uh, what's needed to get the CSAC and what's needed, you know, the way to pass the test is really based and founded on abstinence-based only treatment. So um, this is where I started working in, in, in harm reduction, intentionally offering harm reduction substance use counseling. So harm reduction, as you mentioned, is um, 
is usually associated with syringe exchange. Um, and it, it, it started in about the 80s um, as a response to the HIV epidemic. Um, and, you know, them noticing that a lot of people who were sharing needles to do drugs were, were spreading HIV infections, um, hepatitis C as well. And so that's why they decided to do this needle exchange program where um, someone could turn in their used needles that they had used um, to shoot up drugs and exchange it for, for a new one because we don't want people sharing their needles. Um, and harm reduction, uh, usually when I present in classes and stuff, I ask people, you know, raise your hand if, if you practice harm reduction. Some people raise their hands. And then I say that it's a trick question because we all practice harm reduction in our daily lives. Um, Harm reduction is really just acknowledging that people engage in behaviors that could be risky and offering people the knowledge, tools, resources to engage in behaviors that can minimize the risks associated. And we want to min minimize risks or harm that they could have on themselves, on others, and in the larger community. So we all practice harm reduction by wearing seatbelts and washing our hands and brushing our teeth and uh, you know, wearing a mask, those types of things are all harm reduction. Um, but when we talk about harm reduction for substance use, because there's such a stigma, uh, then all of a sudden it's taboo, right? Then all of a sudden when we talk about syringe exchange, needle exchange, or um, safe injection sites, um, all of a sudden that's like, that's enabling. We can't do that. And I think that's one of a lot of the pushback when it comes to harm reduction is that people think that it's enabling. Um, and for anyone who practices or offers harm reduction services, we know that it's not enabling. Um, we we would I would love for everyone to you know stop using drugs and stop drinking alcohol. But the reality is is that as humans, we've been using substances to alter our state of consciousness since the beginning of time, and we're going to continue to do so. And so. You know, there's this big stigma with drug use that we don't have with alcohol use simply because alcohol is legal. But, you know, comparing safe injection sites to a bar, right, people who are um, saying that safe injection sites are enabling, I assume, go to bars. But when we think about someone going to a bar, we don't say like, oh, that's so that place is enabling. Right. We don't think of the word enabling when we think of someone going to a bar. And we don't think of the word enabling when we think of, you know, like triple A. I know sometimes for certain holidays that are associated with heavy drinking, they offer free tow rides. We don't, we think to ourselves like, well, that's great. Like we don't want people drinking and driving. We don't think to ourselves like, oh, triple A is such an enabler for alcoholism, right? So it, it's, it's, this is my comparison. It's similar to that, but we're working with people who, who are, uh, shooting up drugs. Historically, I think we think more of heroin use, um, especially because we have this huge opioid epidemic going on, so many people overdosing and dying. Um, in Hawaii, the we see mostly meth, and most of the people that I work with are meth users, uh, drinkers, but some of them do use opioids and, and other drugs as well. Um, and so with that, we there's a, a medication, a lot of overdose prevention work that's done. There's a medication that's called naloxone. The brand name is called Narcan. 
Um, there's like a nasal spray version and a, a needle that can go like in the muscle. Um, and that's a medication used to reverse an opioid overdose. And there's a big movement that's been going on that's still going on in order to have uh, naloxone, Narcan, available to anyone and everyone who's in need of it and making it really accessible so that everyone can can have it because you never know um, when you might need it. And so, um, so yeah, harm reduction really started with the syringe exchange. Now we're moving towards, in this country, trying to have those more safe injection sites. And safe injection sites are really about having professionals there ready. Of course, we want to prevent overdose, um, but we also want to be there available to provide other services. Does someone need case management? Does someone need help with housing? Does someone need help with uh, finding a job? Does someone need therapy? And does someone want to go into a substance use treatment program and get help getting there? That's one of the things that I do um, is I help people get into substance use treatment programs. I can do those substance use assessments, psych evaluations that are needed. Um, and I think that a lot of times people don't realize how difficult it is to get into a substance use treatment program, right? Like people have this idea of, uh, well, why don't they just go to treatment? Why don't they just go to rehab? Actually getting into a treatment program can take months. And, and it's, it, there's a lot of steps that are needed to get there. You know, there's usually like a paper application, some sort of, uh, at least in Hawaii, um, some sort of medical clearance. So maybe they need to get some sort of like physical or, you know, get their vitals taken, get some sort of clearance, make sure that they're negative for TB, which is usually uh, two appointments already. Um, maybe they need a psych evaluation. And FYI, we're, we're very uh, understaffed in this country for, for psych support. Um, so if someone needs a psych evaluation, they might not be seen for at least a month. And that's just one of the forms needed to even apply to get on a wait list to get into a treatment program. So um, not easy to get into treatment, FYI, um, especially for people who are living on the streets. Hawaii has one of the highest uh, homeless per capita. And, you know, for people who are on the streets, even if they did want to get treatment, it's it's really, really hard to make appointments and follow through on these types of things when you don't have a phone. If you do have a phone, it's constantly getting stolen or lost. You don't have transportation. You don't have a bus pass. You don't have an ID. You don't have money. You're not getting good sleep. So you don't really know what time it is. Um, and, you know, when people are living on the streets, they're constantly in survival mode. So sometimes a TB appointment is not um, does not fit into survival for the day, even though it was difficult to make that that TB appointment or that psych evaluation appointment or whatever it may be. So um, there is a lot more to programs like safe injection sites other than just, you know, here, go ahead, shoot up. Um, there's, there's a range of services that we want to offer people to really elevate their well-being. And, um, you know, for me, the, the people that I work with, um, I, I work with you know, usually when you think of a substance use counselor, you think of someone who's trying to become abstinent. Um, but the nice thing about harm reduction is we are actually uh, following the protocol of meeting people where they are and and providing that center client 
approach of letting them direct their goals. So some people that I work with do want to become abstinent, right? They want to be completely abstinent off of drugs and alcohol. Um, some of them want to go to treatment to become abstinent. Um, some of them don't. Some of them, you know, kind of maybe want to talk about their substance use. They, they realize it, it's sometimes a problem and then, but not really. Um, and then some people want to maybe stop using meth, but they want to keep smoking weed and drinking alcohol because they don't consider that to be problematic. Um, and some people just want to get a handle on their substance use. Um, so that's what I really love about offering harm reduction counseling services or therapies that I get to work with people on, on different types of goals um, and, and really where they're at and what they want and honor that, you know, with as a harm reduction therapist, I really honor my clients as the experts in their own experience. Um, I, I, they're not coming to me for me to, you know, sit there and tell them what to do and that drugs are bad and they need to stop using. Um, I'm there more to as a resource for us to brainstorm ideas. And of course, I have some knowledge and some suggestions I can throw out for them to dictate the best course of action in their life. And um, so, as I mentioned, you know, we have a lot of meth use here and some people do shoot up meth. Um, we also, of course, have a lot of alcohol use, which is more socially accepted. Um, and something else with harm reduction that we, we do um, that's becoming more popular is what we call medication assist assisted treatment. Um, and so that are, that's medication that's used. It's, a, it's addiction medicine is what we call it. Um, so there's certain medications that can help, like you mentioned, methadone that helps with opioid use disorder. Uh, buprenorphine also helps with opioid use disorder. Um, there's other medications that are used for alcohol use disorder. And historically, a lot of these medications, at least in Hawaii, were not allowed to be used in treatment. Um, it kind of goes along with the 12-step models, right, that even if you're using medical cannabis or even if you're taking methadone, you're not clean. You have to be completely abstinent to be considered and to be accepted in these 12-step groups. Um, so harm reduction, uh, I guess, challenges that and welcomes everyone um, regardless of what's going on in their lives. And so it's, it's really a way to um, offer more love and support and treat people with dignity despite if they're using or not and there's one person that comes to mind for me that that I share about sometimes when I present uh, it was when I first started doing this work and um, they were uh, a meth user I think they usually snorted sometimes shoot it up didn't like to smoke it because they felt like they were wasting it by burning it um, but I remember one time uh, they came to see me and they told me I almost didn't come because I used this morning. I'm high. And I, and I told them, you know, I would much rather you come see me when you're high than you not come at all. And, and that's when I really started telling people, you are welcome to come as you are. You're welcome to come when you're high. I'm not here to judge you for it. I'm not here to tell you. And this is not usually the case with a lot of therapists. A lot of therapists will tell you, you need to take care of your substance use disorder because I can't do therapy with you like this. You have to handle that first and then come back. But with harm reduction therapy, it's really come as you are. I'll meet you where you are. Um, and, and, you know, if, if you're always high and the only way that you're going to make it here is high, 
then I'm going to work with you when, when you're high and that's okay. And so I do end up working with a lot of people who may never stop using. And I do work with a lot of people who are going to die while living on the streets are going to literally die on the streets in their active chaotic substance use. Um, but it, it really is such an honor to get to provide these these services to people when the rest of the world sort of shuns them and tells them that they're undeserving and and not worthy. And and, it, and I, I just I really love being able to provide that space because I think I mentioned this in, in the last um, in the last podcast for a lot of them because they're in constant survival mode constantly trying to, you know, surrounded by people who are also in survival mode, trying to manage their, their chaotic substance use, uh, having harm reduction services allows them to come into a space that is safe and that is stable and that is consistent and that is loving um, in, in a different way that they would get if they weren't engaged, that it's different than they would get on the street or, or you know, with their other drug using peers. Um, so that in itself is just such an honor to do. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about some uh, uh, interventions, I guess, I techniques I use in counseling. So with harm reduction, we do a lot of motivational interviewing um but social workers probably heard of this if you haven't you will soon while you're in school um, but that's a, a counseling technique that's used it uses what we call ors a lot of open-ended questions um affirmations reflective listening and summarizing and and motivational interviewing is a technique used when we hear what we call change talk when someone is in a contemplation stage of change, when they're ambivalent about change. And it's a technique that's used to strengthen motivation for change. Um, so if someone starts talking about, um, yeah, you know, I wanna stop using meth, but I don't think I can live without it, right? That's change talk. And that's when we start implementing motivational interviewing techniques. Um, and so with harm reduction, since we're not so black and white, all or nothing, um, we some of the things that we can start by doing is well i really like my my clients to explore some mindfulness around their using so um you know before you use or drink i say use but alcohol um fits under there uh, check in with yourself very briefly right what is your expectation of this use what are you trying to achieve or, or what are you trying to avoid by using and then after you use, after 30 minutes, an hour, you know, check in with yourself if if your expectation was met um, or if it was more of a, a fantasy expectation. But maybe your expectation was met. You know, a lot of people use meth, um, especially people who are living on the streets to stay awake. It's like their coffee. Um, and I'm assuming a lot of people who are listening, you know, need their coffee. Usually a lot of people, you know, use caffeine to start their day. Um, so I share that as maybe a relatable example, but that's how important it is for them. And when you're living on the streets at nighttime, when you're sleeping, that's when you're the most vulnerable. That's when you're more targeted to be uh, robbed, assaulted, raped. Um, so that's why a lot of people use to keep them awake. Then what happens is that they're awake for so long, 
without the sleep, then they might start getting some psychosis, some paranoia, um, and then they just crash and then really knock out and then they're exposed to theft and all of these things. So difficult cycle to be living in. Um, but some other things that I do, you know, apart from checking in and that mindfulness would be uh, maybe trying to start using a little bit later. Um, so maybe you use um, at like 10 in the morning as soon as you get up. Well, let's try to push that back at till 11 and then eventually 12, 1, 2, 3. And eventually people are able to some people are able to push back to going an entire day without using, maybe using every, not using every two or three days. Um, so that's one of the techniques. We can also talk about, um, these are more common ones that I personally use, um, trying to accomplish certain tasks before using. So, okay, I'm going to use, but before I use, I need to take a shower. Before I use, I need to eat a uh, hearty meal if possible right before I use I'm going to clean my space before I use I'm going to make it to this appointment um so so we can make it a little bit more responsibility task oriented um and let's see what other ones do I do I use but even even just you know making a plan to brush your teeth after smoking that's harm reduction, right? It's it's just, it can be very simple, little lifestyle changes. Um, yeah, those are, those are some of the ones that come to mind. Maybe, you know, I usually cutting back on one drink. Uh, my mom actually taught me to alternate water with my alcoholic beverage. Um, you know, if your last drink is usually at midnight, make your last drink at 11. So little techniques like that. Those are really small steps that we can take. Um, there's also some moderation management groups that people can look into online um, if they're not really into the 12 step groups. Because 12 steps can be really, really helpful for a lot of people, but um, a lot of people actually don't like it as well. Um, yeah. What are what are those options, Natalia? For um. I, I meant to ask you about this anyways, but, uh, you know, considering 12 steps, AANA, a big criticism I would have is just what you're talking about is that, you know, you could have had four years clean and then you smoke some weed or took a drink or something and it's considered a failure. And so some people are resistant to those because they want to use it, whether they want to use other substances or they're turned off by the, you know, the hard, the hardline abstinence, um, abstinence based program, you know, requirement, actually abstinence requirement. You know, are there other options? Because, I, you know, as I'm teaching this class, I would, I would love to present those because I really I, I've been away from that game for quite a while now. And I'm, I'm not familiar with, with other options. Um, well, there's a, the moderation, excuse me, management groups. Um, but I, I don't think that they're not that widely available. I don't even know if we have any in Hawaii. Um, but something that I would really like to start someday right now, I don't have the capacity, but, but would be harm reduction groups where people can come to groups. Um, and, and I know there's other people who, who really want to start the agency that I work for wants to start this when, when we have the capacity is these harm reduction groups where people are welcome to come to these groups, learn about substance use, learn about managing their substance use, but they're not getting kicked out for being high. Um, and they're not getting kicked out for never changing their substance use, right? Like the, the need to change substance use is not a requirement, but yeah, we don't have enough of that and we need more. So anyone who's listening, who's interested, um, who wants to take this on, <laughs> um, that, that is definitely something that, that we need more of. And something else with harm reduction, too, um, is that 
because when I was working in treatment, we really had that disease model, right? When you have a substance use um, disorder, you have a disease, it's a brain disease. And, and the disease model really makes a lot of sense. I think it was started really because we wanted to be able to pay for services through health insurance. Um, so, and then it was also a little bit less stigmatizing than, um, you know, moral failure. If you continue to use your, you're morally wrong or you're morally weak. Um, but, uh, so, so the disease model, the way that I understand and explain it is that, um, when you're using substances, you are altering your brain chemistry and sort of rewiring your brain because your brain gets these hits and spikes and dopamine and, and happiness, you know, happy, happy chemicals, happy hormones in your brain, your brain starts to rewire itself and identify the substance, whether it's alcohol, drugs, whatever it is, um, with survival. So all of a sudden your brain becomes rewired to, to think that you need, or to feel like you need meth, alcohol, heroin, whatever, um, in order to survive the way that you need, uh, sleep and food and sex. Um, and so that's where we come up with this, this brain disease model. Um, with harm reduction, you know, what's nice is that we get to offer other options other than just the one size fits all like we do in, in traditional treatment. Um, and there's actually something called a drug set setting, which is, a if you see it, it's a diagram, it's a triangle. It's almost like a biopsychosocial um, where, where you write out information about the person you're working with, or they can write it out for themselves. Um, but it really acknowledges that substance use has, has a lot more going on. Someone's substance use is, uh, is revolves around a lot of other factors other than just like the brain disease, right? There's, there's environmental factors that contribute to someone's substance use. So someone might drink differently when they're on the streets compared to when they're at the bar. Someone might drink differently at the bar than when they're with their fraternity brothers. And so acknowledging that there are environmental factors that really impact someone's substance use. And the, the example that they gave um, that I could relate to because um, I've, I've done so many assessments and interviews um, is thinking about someone who get, goes to jail, right? Um, there are people who continue to use when they go to jail, but the majority of people that I have worked with, even though they were using daily um, while they were out, once they got incarcerated, they stopped using. And so why is that, right? If we believe that this person has this brain disease, that they're going to be using regardless, um, doing everything that they can to get the substance, why aren't they using in jail when the substances are available in jail? Well, it's because their environment has changed, their priorities have changed, maybe they need to look out for themselves in a different way. Um, and so this is just the example that they gave me in, in regards to drug set setting, and it kind of um, challenges this disease model. And so when I work with people, it's nice to be able to give different options. Uh, so that they can pick what resonates best with them and, and maybe gain a little bit more insight. Because the people that I work with that have been in and out of treatment, they're very much in this treatment mode, right? I have a disease, I'm an addict, um, and, and that's just the way it is. And, and there's a lot of shame that comes with that as well, right? Like if I relapse, I, I, I'm so ashamed, I need to, I don't wanna show my face anymore. I'm not supposed to show my face anymore because I'm gonna get in trouble for that. There's gonna be consequences. And with harm reduction, 
you know, I, I love to tell people like, if you relapse, whatever happens, because relapse does happen, um, and this is almost expected, um, you're still welcome to come here. Please come here, you know, um, and we can change our goals and that's okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I want to thank you for everything you've been talking about. There are so many things you're talking about that I feel like we could unpack in a whole episode um, that are worthy of talking about. So I want to circle back and talk about several of the things um, that you had mentioned. And one of those was drug testing. And I just have a quick story that, or a, a collection of stories that's kind of funny going back to my old, my old life way back in the day. But, you know, I used to smoke a lot of marijuana um, when I was like, uh, at this time I was like, I don't know, 18, 19, 20. And I had a buddy of mine, his name was Lamar, but you know, we were the type, we were basically running the streets and, you know, we'd get a job and work it for a couple of weeks and get a new job after that you quit and keep moving on. But we went to great lengths to, you know, um, disguise our, our marijuana in our, uh, in our urine samples when we had to apply for a new job. And most of the time it worked and we'd get somebody to, to pee in a, in a pill bottle or something of the equivalent and we'd go in. But this one time I went in and uh, it was that like a temp, it was through a temp a employee agency or something like that. And uh, I had my uncle um, pee in a, in a pill bottle for me. And what we'd do is you'd keep it close, put it in your underwear so it was close to you so it would stay warm. But I went in there and it was like an hour wait. And so I began to get paranoid that it was going to be too cold. So I went outside to my car, I had this old Toyota Celica. But I turned the defrost on high and I put the bottle up there so it would warm it up. And uh, I went back in and uh, they called me pretty quick. And they, the lady was like, after I had done it, she's like, have you been feeling ill? Are you okay? Are you feeling sick? And I was like, no, why? Well, your, your, uh, your, I can't remember exactly, but your urine sample was really warm. I can't remember the temperature, but so I had overheated it over the top. So I just left. I didn't even deal with it. I ran away from it. But another more serious instance that falls in line with uh, that was just humorous, but this other one uh, kind of falls in line um, with what you were talking about earlier. I was in an uh, uh, abstinence-based rehab program, 12-step program. Um, it was like a 28-day thing, I think. And uh, I went through about half of the time, I think it's because I think it's, it was insurance-related. I stayed there for like 15 days in person, and then the insurance wouldn't pay for me to stay there anymore, so I was going to start going home at night. So I stayed and we had movie night. It was like Saturday night and my stepdad was supposed to pick me up. And I don't remember exactly how it went down, but I went outside and he never came. And maybe he came later or something or whatever. But so I tried to go back in the hospital and it was locked. And so, you know, my drug addict, I've recently cleaned. My drug addict mind starts working and I had a place nearby where I used to hang out. I was, I'm going to go over there and see what they're doing, but I'm not going to get high or anything like that. And I walked halfway there and I was like, I'll definitely get high. I'm going to turn back around. So I turned back around, didn't go. Thankfully for me, you know, never one misstep can, can go a long way sometimes. But I went back and I still couldn't get in that elite at the uh, treatment center part of the hospital. So I went up to the ER. There was a lot of people in there and I slept in the um, in the chair. And when I went back the next morning, of course, everybody thought I was out getting high or whatever. But they treated me like a piece of shit like I was lying and they were very cold towards me, you know, and they made me go take this test. And, and, and I'm not saying they shouldn't have had me take a, a urine analysis, but they were, they just treated me like I was a guilty piece of shit basically and was lying my ass off. And here I was for the first time in a long time, you know, not lying. And, you know, I did the right thing. I turned back around. 
but I can really empathize with folks, you know, that have to, to do the, the drug test. And I think one of the biggest fallacies that go along with drug testing is that the drug that causes the least amount of harm, marijuana, is the one that stays in people's systems the longest. So as somebody who's been around these drugs for many, many years, you could go use meth or some coke or some heroin and go back in a few days and pass clean. But if you use marijuana, it could potentially be there for, you know, 30 days or more. And so it really is not testing people for the drugs that, we're, that, are, that are really causing harm. And so I just wanted to empathize with what you talked about um, with that. Um, can I, but what I really want to ask you about- Can I say something real oh, quick? You just reminded me about, well, a, a few things. Um, one is that the, the other thing that I've noticed is, you know, I know it's really hard to get data on the uh, numbers, the success rates of people who complete treatment um, or people who even start treatment, right? Because there's so much uh, attrition or people who don't end up completing. But um, I know so many people who have graduated from the treatment program I used to work at that are back on the streets using. And so it was kind of like, of course, we say about, you know, you go to treatment multiple times and it's planting seeds and this and that. But I'm like, this this is not it. Like, this is not, it's working. But just for such a small percentage of people, we, we got to do something else. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to say with harm reduction is we're very mindful of our language that we're using. So, you know, with harm reduction, I even try to stay away from the word um, addiction or addict. I've had someone, people come in and tell me that they're an addict and, and I ask them to explain to me what that means because I don't know. And, uh, and you know, just trying to stay away from words like clean and dirty uh, because those are stigmatizing words, right? Like you're dirty for using. Um, so I, I personally say, you know, in harm reduction, we'll say like someone who's using or not using, abstinent or not abstinent or abstinent from meth, abstinent from heroin, um, and a positive or negative drug test. But anyway, just wanted to chime in. Yeah, and, and that's cool that you mentioned that, you know, because those things can be hard. It can be hard to do to change what's natural, I shouldn't say naturally, but what, you know, we've, we've used certain vo words, certain vocabulary forever. You know, in my, like when I talk about clean and dirty, I'm mostly speaking like from a street sense. That's the way we talked about it. Not, but then, you know, I actually was corrected in the, when I worked in the methadone clinic by the doctor. He told me not to talk like that when I was talking about a, a case report, but it can be hard to do. And the only way you can start is just by being aware of it and conscious of like, you know, Rastafarians believe that words have power, the, the, the way words sound and the meaning behind them have power. So you should never, they argue that you should never, you know, use words in, a, in and we do this in, a, in, you know, American culture a lot. We have words that don't really mean that they, they don't reflect their actual meaning. And so it's important we say what we mean, and especially when we're because everybody doesn't have the same vocabulary and the same background as we do. And the words do have power. So, you know, clean and dirty do have significance, even though it doesn't, it might seem like they don't, they do. And so it's important. So I'm glad you brought that up. Um, and I was also thinking historically, you know, it's, uh, on you, when I was using drugs and running the streets, um, it was all meth. Like you mentioned, meth was a big thing, but methamphetamine was everywhere. I knew lots and lots of people that used drugs and were in the game. And I only knew one person that used heroin back then. Only one person out of like the hundreds and hundreds of people. And uh, there was no money to be made in selling it. Um, but one thing that I did notice at that time when I went to treatment is that there were several people in there for uh, Oxycontin um, that had been prescribed. I think about, I think this is just a, you know, a loose guess from on my, me remembering, but I'd say about half of them had been prescribed it and then got addicted for whatever they were injured. And then about half, the other half 
had picked it up from the streets for, for various reasons. Um, but if you fast forward today, I know every communities are, many communities are different and, 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 and whatnot, but it seems that opioids have taken the place of methamphetamine to a large degree um, based on, you know, my experience and the people that I talk to and, and obviously like the, the, uh, um, the epidemic that's going on right now uh, with fentanyl. And so it, it's, all, it's, it's just interesting to look back and see historically how it took place. You can see exactly why there's a lot of opioid addicts um, today if you look back at the prescriptions that were being given you know, back in my day and why, why it switched. But you know, a lot of people um, reference the feeling of using heroin or opioids as you know, like a warm hug, and it made them feel, it released the pain that they feel in their normal life. And Dr. Gabor Mate, you know, he always uses the mantra like, um, stop asking about why the drugs, you know, why you keep using all these drugs when they're destroying your life, your body, they're destroying our relationship, all these things. Uh, when you should be asking why the pain, you know, why, um, what's so bad about the other version of your life that, you know, using this drug that's destroying you in many different uh, facets is worth doing. What's so bad about that other part? What, where's that pain coming from? And many of us and, and many people in, in treatment and, and that are drug users don't ever have the opportunity to explore the reason for the, the reason or the reasons for the pain behind it. And so um, you talk about harm reduction, and I think like that's a huge step in allowing folks to be themselves as they are in the present. Um, you know, even like you said, even if they're using at the time. But uh, you know, how do you? How does? How do? Maybe I shouldn't say how does harm reduction because it's such a wide. Uh, you know, wide lane, but how do you and the, and, and at your agency, how do you, you know, make sure that you don't look past the pain behind the, behind the use before the use, the pain with sobriety with being, with being, uh, with not. Yeah. Using. Um, I'm so glad that you brought this up. Uh, so a couple of things, the first thing is with opioids. So we, we all have opioid receptors in our brain. Um, and those are related to endorphins, which are some of our like feel good hormones. Um, and, and opioids are really related to it. It's funny because when you're saying this, you're talking about emotional trauma and emotional pain and, you know, that warm hug. Um, but, but it's really these, these drugs are prescribed for physical pain. Um, and, and so they're related to if you break your arm, um, that's going to affect your opioid receptors. And, the, and it's going to release endorphins to help you feel better and protect you and help you manage the physical pain. Um, so, so I just, I just wanted to bring that up. It's really interesting. And if anyone's listening, I think I did mention a lot of drugs or medications that have opioids in them, but I don't think I mentioned fentanyl, which is, which is a, a medication that's used. I had it used when I had my son um, in my epidural and I had a C-section. Um, so it's still used, but now it's, it's being made, um, it's, it's not being um, manufactured under supervision, right? We don't really know what it's in. And a lot of drugs are being laced with fentanyl. Um, even methamphetamine has fentanyl in it. Um, cocaine, which methamphetamine or, and cocaine are stimulants. They're uppers. People use those for opposite reasons that they're using uh, opioids. Um, and I've heard even more recently that they're lacing cannabis with fentanyl. So... This really goes along with um, what Dr. Carl Hart was saying, that we all have a right to uh, be, be able, we want to be able to test our drugs and, and make sure that we know what we're taking. 
Um, there's also fentanyl test strips um, where you can, it's, it's almost like a, it's almost like a pregnancy test where you, where you put a strip mix, mix your drugs with water and it tests to check if there's fentanyl in there. Um, but people who use drugs have the right to know what they're using the same way that people that go to a bar have a right to not have their drug, uh, their drink drugged their, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, so uh, similar ways, but like you were mentioning, right, um, there's something much deeper than just the substance use. And, and with harm reduction, of course, let's see. Well, you know, a lot of the people that I work with, like I mentioned, they are going to probably continue using for the rest of their life. Um, and their life is going to be cut short uh, as a result of homelessness and substance use and, and maybe some other medical problems. Um, but I, I, I like to mention Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, and if I'm assuming social workers are all familiar, but Maslow's hierarchy of needs is, is this another triangle <laughs> um, that talks at the top is self-actualization. And it talks about what's at the base and what is needed in order for someone to become, um, to like gain enlightenment, enlightenment within themselves, be the best version of themselves. And at the very base of that is like food, water, rest, right? Like basic safety survival needs. And a lot of the people that I work with, they don't have that. They're, they don't have a roof over their, their head. They're not safe when they're on the streets. They don't have access to running water all the time. Um, and so this can make it really difficult if they're trying to get off of opioids because um, opioids, you become physically dependent on them. And it's, it's really, really hard to detox off of them because people get sick. Um, they feel like they're going to die, which is one of the reasons it's really hard to get off of opioids um, after that hug, right? When that hug goes away, you get sick, you have diarrhea, you throw up. And if you can imagine who wants to have diarrhea and throw up and get chills when they don't have a bed or a bathroom. Um, so that's just to give some perspective. But with that said, right, for for the people that I'm working with, because they're in this constant survival mode, we're not going to be able to get very high on that hierarchy of needs. We're not going to be able to do too much of that um, healing, that deep healing where we would imagine, where we ideally fantasize or want someone to get to because they don't have a home, right? How can someone um, heal from deep wounded trauma, which will usually go hand in hand with decreased or, you know, complete cc uh, abstinence of substance use but how can they do that if they don't have a safe place to lay their head at night and they're not even getting you know maybe five hours of sleep on a good night um and they're not really getting nutrients or water you know so when it comes to those things it can be really difficult to do that work and the a lot of the work that i do the the therapy the therapeutic part in the what healing happens is in our relationship. Uh, a lot of people that I work with, they've been otherized, they've been shunned, they've been deemed as bad, they've burned bridges or just cut off from their family. 
Um, so they really don't have anyone to offer that empathy, that real caring empathy without a second motive of trying to be in that survival mode, like some of their peers or neighbors that they associate with. Um, so just being able to provide that space where the person can feel heard and validated and honored, um, that's where the therapy is. And that's where the healing is. Because even Gaber Mate, I've heard him say, it's, it's, it's not what happened to you specifically, it's what happened to you inside of you as a result, right? Like, did anyone talk to you about what happened to you? Did anyone provide you the space to process it? And so with harm reduction therapy, especially working with a lot of people who are on the streets or actively using drugs, is just providing that space where someone can feel heard and honored and cared for. Um, and, and that's really the strength of the work that I do. So I, I even want to refer some people to EMDR sometimes, but can't offer, you know, EMDR or, or you know, really deep other types of uh, trauma therapy that we think are going to heal when the person is actively traumatized daily. So um, it's, it's a little bit different, but not everyone that I work with in that is in that situation. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, you speak about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and, you know, let's say we're down here at the bottom and you talked about like stuff like shelter and food and whatnot, but another one of those is safety, right? I don't know if you mentioned it or not, but well, it's obviously it's reasonable for us to look at and maybe assume that somebody who's, um, you know, using drugs intravenously, um, been using for a long time, that they might live in an environment where they feel unsafe um, for a variety of reasons. But to take it further, you might look, especially like when you, if you believe in like the things that Dr. Mata are teaching, if you were to look deeper, you would see that this person may have never felt safe in their life. And so when we're trying to provide a place of safety or trying to get them there, they might not even understand or have a grasp of what that even means. Um, and so where our expectations for them can be unreasonable because they don't see things the way that we do. They don't even have the, his the history, the experience to reflect that at all. They don't know what it means. Um, and that's especially when you're, uh, from my experience and perspective, when you're talking about uh, chronic drug users over, over many years, especially like intravenous drug users, that, um, you know, that's going to be the case for them. Um, they're going to have backgrounds. You, you, you typically, I'm not saying it never happens, but typically, you know, if you get to that point, there's, a, there's so much background behind it, you know, that, again, the person may have never, they may, may have been in uh, violent situations their whole life. They may, you know, they may have been neglected. They may never have even had security when it comes to food. There's a lot of different things to think about that we take for granted sometimes when we expect from, from other people. Um, and so I just think, you know, I, I really appreciate that you bring light to some of these things and you're humanizing the individual. Um, I'm wondering if you have any more or maybe one, I know you already, you already talked about one at the beginning, but do you have any success stories that you're willing to share? Like uh, any individuals that you worked with where you saw, you know, some transformative change take place? Uh, based on, you know, the availability of harm reduction? Yeah. And, you know, that's the thing with harm reduction, too, is like, how do we define success, right? Is success someone, um, you know, becoming abstinent from their uh, substance use disorder? Uh, or, you know, for me, the success is more um, the little changes, the, the little positive, and really an overall um, 
an overall um, feeling of, of well-being, uh, overall, just to improve overall wellness and, and satisfaction in life, even if it's just by a little bit. Um, so for success stories, I mean, this person that I, that I talked about, um, that I told them that I would rather them show up high than them not show up at all. Um, I, I was doing some case management in the beginning. I don't really do case management anymore, and I don't know how familiar people are with Housing First, but you know, I was working more closely with Housing First, and I did get some people housed, and I will say that being able to do the paperwork and you know engage someone, go on outreach, get, get that rapport, build that trust, build that relationship, as much as it pisses me off in the sense that I'm like, why has no one else done this already? Why are you still on the streets? And why am I the one doing this? What you've been on the streets for years, this should have been taken care of already. Um, but getting someone housed is such a good feeling. Like to be like, you're up for housing, we're gonna get you a, an apartment. Like, oh my goodness, that's better than anything related to substance use for me. Um, but this one specific person did end up dying. Um, and you know what? They died in their apartment. And that for me is just brings me so much peace because if they didn't die in their apartment, they were going to die on the street. Um, and, and so for me, that's a success. But I, I have lots of success stories. Um, another one, just one more that comes to mind that I actually journaled about it was my first time journaling about a success story. Um, someone tried to get me kind of child welfare services try to drag me in and I was like, oh man, I don't want to be responsible for making decisions for, for the outcome of this family. But um, it, it was someone who was d delivering a baby, had substances in their system, child welfare services were involved. They wanted me to do a substance use assessment. Um, and of course, with these assessments, we would say, okay, well, based on your drug use, you should go to residential treatment, right? That's like with the traditional way of doing things. But with harm reduction, it's really honoring the client's goals and needs and, and what and letting them advocate for themselves. And this person said, I don't want to go to treatment. I'll go to treatment if that's what it takes to kid my baby. But I don't want to go to treatment. So, you know, with that and honoring the client, I, I was able to advocate on their behalf and say, I don't think that the certain level of care or, would be appropriate for this person. Um, you know, this person has agreed to do this, this, and this to support their recovery. They're aware that they can contact me in the future if they decide that they need a higher level of care and do want to go into treatment. Um, but it wouldn't be ethical of me to recommend something that they're not internally motivated to do. Um, and I might be setting them up for failure as well. And um, completely forgot about this. And months later, this person reached out to me with pictures of their baby, just telling me that they're thriving and doing so well. And thank you very, like, so much, you know, for advocating on their behalf. Um, so that, that was a nice, that was, that made me tear up. <laughs> yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, so I want to reorient ourselves real quick. Um, I want to get to the questions in the chat in a minute. Uh, we have several of them. I don't know if Nico, if you're listening and if you saw the chat, it'd be cool if you could call in in a minute and talk and just enter the conversation and bring in Fairbanks have such a different dynamic uh, than Honolulu. Obviously Honolulu, you know, you could sleep outside pretty much 365 days a year for the most part. Whereas, you know, Fairbanks is going to be dealing with 
extreme weather temperatures, so it presents unique challenges. It might be interesting to, to look at that. Also wanted to, uh, we'll get to some of these later, but wanted to ask you about, uh, let's see, Linnell asked, um, she, she mentions that, uh, you know, don't call if you've had a drink uh, call before. You know, don't call us if you've been drinking. We've, you're not going to get a cuddle over it. And you said that you don't mind when, uh, you know, or I guess I shouldn't say you don't mind, but you don't turn people away when, you know, if they're, if they're coming and they've been using. And I agree with that for the most part. What I would like, I think alcohol is a good example because some people on alcohol are completely, you know, like egotistical and I guess, you know, it'd be impossible to break through in certain circumstances. I have friends um, that have been alcoholics that there's no way that I, actually I haven't have an example when and he's, he's, he's sober now. So that's cool. But um, I took him to an, I called, I knew he'd been drinking so much recently. So I called and took him to an AA meeting. And I, when I picked him up, he was just slammered and he just made a fool out of himself at the, at the AA meeting, you know, but like trying to give other people advice when he slammered drunk and, you know, lecturing people and whatnot. Um, and then the other one that I could think of, you know, I've been around intravenous users of meth and uh, can become very irrational very quickly, different, completely different personality. Except, you know, being irrational would be the number one thing. And so in principle, I agree that I would not turn people away. And in the most, I think in most cases, like 90% of circumstances or, you know, a high percentage that it wouldn't, that I could, it, it could be a positive interaction um, and that my door should be open. But I definitely wouldn't want that friend that I was talking about that was drunk or some of those intravenous meth users coming through my door. And I've even experienced that a little bit as a counselor, the intravenous meth users. Um, what do you think about that? Like, can you just add some more context? Do you have any, any more? Yeah, I mean, we, oh, I, and also like in our personal lives versus in our work lives, we have different boundaries. So keeping that in mind, right, I, I might have less, less patience for someone or less ability to help because of my own. Uh, personal relationship with them um, compared to in my personal life versus my work life. Um, but for, for a lot of these folks, you know, as long as they're not violent, you know, or, or causing physical harm to other people or, you know, threats of harm to other people in the waiting room or to myself, if I'm not scared, um, they're welcome to come. And I, and I have met with people where it's like my, people might think it's like a waste of time um, where our conversation does not go anywhere. I can't understand what they're saying. I was working with one person who was trying to get into detox, which is very difficult to do here. Uh, FYI, um, we don't have a medical detox. We only have social detox. They don't answer the phone because they're short staff. They tell you to call later. People don't have phones. So they, maybe they came, the person came to me to use the phone. And the person is just sitting in my cubicle because we're waiting like an hour or two to call detox back because that's what they told us to do. And this person, I mean, it was like a toddler. They're just all over the place, putting things in their mouth, being loud, yelling. And I'm just trying to <laughs> keep it down, please. We're, you know, we're in a workspace and don't put that in your mouth. Okay, we put that in your mouth. Now you're going to have to keep that. You know, I don't want that back. Thank you. And, um, and you know, even though it seems like we're not doing that, therapy of diving deep as to, you know, what we're going to do next, just being present with someone and showing them that they're welcome and still worthy of our time and worthy of our services and worthy of our attention at the lowest of their low. Um, 
even they may not even fully remember it, but they'll remember that feeling, right? It's it's our own version of that hug. Um, and, and that's building rapport. So if that person does want help in the future, they're going to remember, I can come to you because I remember I came to you before and, and how I felt when I was around you and how you treated me. And so, yeah, it, it can be difficult, but, you know, people are welcome to come as they are for real. Yeah, appreciate that. Thanks for sharing that with us. I thought we could pivot over to um, a little bit about homelessness, homelessness and, you know, maybe talk about the intersectionality of substance abuse, homelessness, and maybe even HIV. But I thought we could invite Nico. Nico's one of my students. He's been with me for uh, over a year now. And um, he's, he'll tell you, his, I'm not sure but right off the top of my memory what his exact role is, but he works, he's in a supervisory role with the VA, I think. Um, and so I'm hoping he can give us some context on what the, like I was saying a minute ago about Fairbanks, the cold and whatnot. So I'm going to bring, bring you on, Nico. Can you hear us? Nico, hey, you there? Hey, Professor, can you hear me? I think you're on. Yeah, we can hear you. Thanks for, thanks for calling going in. Pretty good, going pretty good. Going pretty good. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, so, yeah, uh, Fairbanks is pretty unique, uh, but I guess I, I probably should start off with. Uh, so I am a program director for two VA-funded homeless veteran programs. Uh, one is SSVF, Supportive Services for Veteran Families, and the other one is GPD, uh, Grant Per Diem. And pretty much what we do is we provide case management, uh, and we help homeless veterans and veterans that are in imminent danger of becoming homeless uh, become housed. Uh, so the whole purpose of both programs is to improve income, uh, refer them to different agencies that provide substance abuse treatment, uh, and, and, you know, in the end, stabilize them. Um, so in Fairbanks, there is only one shelter, uh, and that shelter is a Christian organization. So, you know, uh, we welcome everybody to the shelter. Well, I shouldn't say we because I don't make, uh, you know, the policies as far as who who comes into the shelter. I work more with the VA uh, side of it, but the shelter welcomes anyone. However, uh, if if you're under the influence or anything like that, you can't come into the shelter. And again, you know, emphasis on that's the only shelter in Fairbanks. Uh, you know, it gets negative 40 outside um, and up until probably about, a year ago, there was literally nowhere else to send them. Uh, so if a person would come in, they don't even have to necessarily, you know, um, show symptoms of being high, you know, or, you know, talking, talking a lot or acting out of the ordinary. Uh, but when they come in, they, they're UA'd. So if they're UA'd and they have, you know, methamphetamines in their system, uh, you know, the staff usually automatically assumes that that person used recently. And it's a risk to other clients that's inside of the shelter, which in returns leaves them outside. Uh, you guys probably heard about a gentleman that passed away um, last year who who the shelter uh, uh, made leave the shelter. Um, so, you know, in Fairbanks, if I think on the top of my head, uh, let's see, we have Ralph Perdue. Uh, we have Restore. And I, I believe that is the only two treatment facilities that we have. Um, so, and, and, and it's a pretty large population in Fairbanks. I mean, it's not as big as Anchorage. So a lot of the time those facilities are full. 
So, so what do we do? You know, um, we constantly run into problems where we might have people that's ready to go to treatment, but there's a, you know, three week month wait process. You know, it's not like, you know, I can refer them over there or walk them over there. They fill out some paperwork, they're assessed and, you know, they get in there. Um, so, you know, it leads them on the streets, gives them opportunity to say, oh, never mind. Must be a sign, you know, I'm not ready. Uh, if I, if, if it was time for me to do it, I would have been able to get in today. Um, so, we, yeah, we always run into problems like that. Um, the good thing about the VA, which conflict, conflicts with the organization, uh, the VA has a uh, housing first approach. So it doesn't matter, you know, if a person shows up to the shelter drunk or high, you know, obviously the shelter is going to tell them, hey, you can't stay here. You got to go. Um, but I'm able to bring them in my office, you know, talk to them, uh, uh, put them in a hotel room until I can find housing for them since they can't stay in the shelter. Um, you know, which, which sometimes poses, you know, other risks. I've, I've put veterans in hotels before, um, you know, and they tear the hotel room up and, and, you know, we, we, we have to pay for it or, you know, uh, unfortunately, you know, we had a veteran that we put in a hotel room who, who, um, you know, overdose. Um, so that kind of weighs heavy on you. It kind of makes you feel like, damn, you know, what if I wouldn't have put him in that hotel room? Um, you know, would, would he had still overdose or would she had still overdose? Um, so yeah, Fairbanks is very complex and, you know, to the point where it just always weighs on my mind, like, you know, maybe, maybe I should open up a facility or a homeless shelter where the barriers are super duper low and, you know, we can just take everybody as they are, or, or, you know, maybe I should go up to the uh, city hall and, and advocate for opening up a mental health facility because there's not one in Fairbanks. There, there's, I mean, you have Alaska behavioral health, uh, but there's, there, there's really not a uh, inpatient treatment facility. And as we all know, um, you know, a lot of substance abuse is directly connected to some kind of mental trauma or something that, that people went to. And we just have nowhere to send them to, you know. So, you know, that's 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 pretty much the challenges here uh, in Fairbanks. Hey, Nico, are most of the veterans that you work with that experience homeless that you work with in, in Fairbanks, are they like uh, did they got roots in Fairbanks or did they end up in Fairbanks because of the uh, some some? have roots in Fairbanks and some, you know, got out of the military and had a plan to leave kind of like myself and just ended up, you know, stuck here in Fairbanks. And then believe it or not, you have veterans that, you know, might stay in Florida and just wake up one day and say, I'm going to Alaska and, you know, don't have anything at all in Alaska, no house, no plan, no, no nothing. Just drive up here, them, you know, and a few kids and stuff like that. And, you know, like I said, we meet them where they are, although we might feel like that's not a good plan just to up and move to Alaska and not know anyone. Uh, you know, we, we try to stay judgment free and, 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 you know, get them housed. Yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you for the work that you do, first of all. Um, and thank you, ma'am. I know that, you know, it's, it's really difficult because we are going to, we are going to have to question the, the house, you know, the, I feel like the help that I've tr tried to give has backfired and, and, and that can be really difficult to deal with. Um, and, and of course the people that we work with, they are going to die. Some of them are going to overdose, right? As much as, as much as we try our best to prevent those things. 
Um, and that's why I really encourage right, anyone who we know might be using opioids or, or mentions using meth and it puts them to sleep um, to have naloxone, to have their roommate or best friend or someone have naloxone, if they're getting out of treatment, have naloxone, um, not using alone. But anyway, sorry, that's getting off topic. What I was going to say is that um, if you are thinking about opening a shelter or, or some sort of program, I would really, really encourage you. What's what's difficult, of course, is funding. Um, and, and what I've seen is that staff is underpaid, staff is burnt out, staff is exposed to trauma and traumatized daily. Um, so the better we can take care of our staff, the better we can provide services. Um, but also, right, I really challenge you to create something different. Because a lot of people go to shelter, at least here, a lot of people don't want to go to shelter because it reminds, it's, it's institutionalized. It reminds them of jail. It has so many rules. I mean, even a curfew, right? Like a curfew is not low barrier. Um, and so I, if you were to do that, I would really, really encourage you to try to do something completely different than what there is out there um, and not follow these typical protocols um, because shelters are not they're not they're not a good place to be people they're they're traumatizing in themselves so whatever you can do to make it different um and to take care of the staff yeah yeah definitely and you know that's uh you know in the programs that i currently run that's that's you know that's one of the issues uh you have a uh, a high turnover rate uh because you're not you're not able to pay you know people their worth your employees their worth so in return, what happens to the veterans or to the clients? They they get a new case manager every, you know, three times a month or three times a year, you know, so they never get to build that relationship and that bond that they need to, to move forward. Uh, and, you know, yeah, so, yeah, I think I think that's some, some excellent advice. Um, and, and I'll keep that in my mind. And it was something else that that you said. Um, oh, yeah, um, I thought it was, you know, very helpful. Um, the tactics of, you know, not measuring success by completely being sober or, you know, you know, and I've I've done that in the past, you know, um, work with somebody for a year and a half, uh, you know, know their kids are in, you know, OCS or something like that. And they're currently using and, you know, if you bring up, you know, treatment or something like that, they'll respond with we don't like places like that. Um, but. I, I think all along a better approach would have been using some of the tools that you mentioned, like for one, the, um, you know, having them accomplish a task a day, you know, and, and just slowly increasing what they accomplish. And then maybe at some point, um, you know, they could, you know, fully be ready to be sober or clean or whatever the case uh, may be. Um, so I thought there was some, some good information. I'm, I'm definitely, I think I'm going to make it, mandatory for my staff to watch this you know <laughs> so they can get some information <laughs> um so thank you for that yeah you're welcome thanks for being here yeah you know I can, thank you ma'am i can empathize with fair with nico and fairbanks i've only had to try to find treatment for one person when i was uh, actually doing my undergrad practicum in fairbanks but i looked and looked and looked and looked and i mean i went down to juno to rainforest recovery i tried to hook them up in fairbanks um, well, the only taker we had was a religious guy that the, the person I was working with, he didn't want nothing to do with that. I tried to go down to Seattle and everything. So it's really hard. Like there's really not a place. And 
And, uh, you know, something that's concerning when you think about it, and obviously there must be some other, some other kind of options out there for folks, um, but, you know, if it's 40 below zero and you're high or intoxicated and uh, you need to go somewhere warm, that's pretty much a choice of abstinence or death, if that makes sense, um, in that situation. Obviously, every, there's not hundreds of people dying, so there must be some other places for them to go. But that's a, that's a pretty stark contra a stark picture to paint you know what i'm saying like um if these individuals that may be probably coming from backgrounds of trauma you know many holes in their lives um and uh you know addict or you know using substances addicted abusing whatever terminology we want to use is that worthy of you know putting someone out in 40 below zero i would argue probably not um but, you know that's concerning um where would someone go, Nico, if they didn't have anywhere? If they well, were uh, la last year they had some, uh, they opened up, I believe it was two uh, warming stations. So, you know, and they were like little small, little small trailers. Uh, so, it, you know, they could only fit probably about 20 people at once. And, you know, you'd go inside of there to, to give out some sack lunches or something because, you know, we do outreach and stuff like that. So uh, I'd go in there and give out some sack lunches and it's it's only made for 20 people, but it'd be 30 people inside of there, you know? Um, so yeah, it's super discouraging. Um, I, I mean, I, I understand that, you know, having somebody that's actively under the influence high or whatever the case might be, might be a danger to other people. Um, but I, I just also feel like there's other things that we can implement to reduce the danger. I mean, you know, if, if they punch somebody, chances are they're not going to kill somebody from punching them, but Perhaps we could, you know, hook up that metal detector that we have sitting at our door that's not hooked up, you know, to make sure that, you know, they, they can't have any access to any weapons uh, or just, just just other things. But as far as like the, the treatment goes and stuff like that, we usually end up sending our folks to uh, we, ha we have this place in Arizona, uh, Tucson, Arizona, uh, that we send folks to. They take um, what is it? Medi I think it's Medicaid. Um, I always get Medicaid and Medicare mixed up. Um, but, but they take, uh, you know, the, the regular state, uh, medical, and then we have the Dom that's located in Anchorage. Uh, and we have the Chris Kyle center, uh, that's located in Anchorage. Um, but those centers, you have to qualify for VA healthcare. So if you served in the national guard for 15 years, but didn't have any active time, you're not going to qualify for that. Or if you served in the military for 10 years and you decided to do something dumb, you know, uh, and got put out of the military and got, let's say, uh, a, a bad conduct discharge, you're not going to qualify to go there. Um, so it's, 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 it's just really a struggle. And we're always just trying to, you know, uh, uh, build, build a list of places that we can send people. Um, I just recently hired a healthcare navigator. Um, so we can have one person focus on that aspect of our program instead of, you know, having the case managers trying to focus on, focus on housing, focus on finding them jobs and then, you know, giving 25% on healthcare, you know, or getting them hooked up with treatment facilities. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a struggle and, you know, um, it's, it's, it's been a lot of times I, at one point, um, I was a, uh, overnight shelter manager. Um, and you know, I probably could have got fired a bunch of times, but I was, you know, I was told I can give grace, you know? So, I mean, if, 
you know, people came there and, you know, they were under the influence. I mean, obviously I would watch them on the camera, make sure they go to their bunk and lay down and don't, you know, uh, uh, make any ruckus or anything like that. Uh, but, but I, I, I always let, I let people in, you know, um, and unfortunately, you know, I know everyone isn't like that. And, you know, I think I don't want to put words in the CEO's mouth or anything like that, but I, I guess I haven't mentioned the organization, but all think uh, some of the thinking, not just from the CEO, but from the whole staff is this is a state problem. Um, this organization that I work for is a nonprofit organization. Um, so what is the state going to do about this problem? Is the state going to open up a facility, a mental health facility, or are they going to open up a shelter with very, very low barriers? Because the, the the facility that's open now, although it's a shelter, but it's also like a, uh, what is it called? A programmatic uh, shelter. You have to be willing to work a program and, and you have to be willing to do certain things to stay there. So it's not like your traditional shelter where, you know, you just check in and you can, you know, whatever, whatever, and you leave during the day and come back type deal. Um, so I, I think amongst the staff, everybody's just kind of thinking like, what is the state going to do about this? And, you know, at one point, I actually thought they were doing something uh, right down the street. There, it was a big old building they were building. I'm like, oh, my gosh, they're building a mental health facility. I'm asking everybody, like, what is that building? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Finally, they got finished building the building. And as a backup to the food bank, so the food bank could have extra storage area for food. And that was just disheartening. I was just, you know, I was, I, I had high hopes that they were building a, a facility that would, that people who were having, you know, manic episodes or, you know, whatever they were having, they could go into that facility and get stabilized. And, and that's not what they were building. And, and we still don't have no facility like that. Um, if, you know, if, not to jump too far off of substance abuse, but if we have, someone come to our facility and you know they're cussing and fussing and you know being disrespectful i guess you'd call it um you know they're put out they're put out of of, of our organization and they pretty much just walk the streets cussing and fussing because there's nowhere else and then if you take them over to fmh to the fourth floor uh you know the person can you can get them in there and then you know 20 minutes later they're discharged you know, um, I, I had a veteran uh, that was uh, he, he he used uh, methamphetamines um, and he had a history of lighting stuff on fire. Um, now, uh, when FMH called me, they didn't tell me that um, they just told me he was homeless. So I said, well, he's a homeless veteran. Of course, I can house him. So I got the veteran over to my office and I immediately noticed that he was high and he, he was <coughs> excuse me he was having some uh, mental health issues, but again, you know, housing first, we meet them where they are. <clears throat> so I, I was working with the veteran, but when we got to the portion of where did you stay last and uh, why were you asked to leave? I found out that he had set the apartment on fire. Um, so obviously that's a concern to me because I don't want to house somebody who's going to set a place on fire. Um, upon further research, the place before that he set on fire and the last time that he was at our organization in our building. Uh, so I called back over to FMH and they were just pretty much like, Oh, we can't take them. Uh, we can't, we, there's nothing we can do. 
So I put the I put the veteran in. I found a hotel that didn't have um, uh, stoves or anything like that. And I put them in the hotel while I tried to figure out what I could do. You know, I had multiple conversations with FMH and every time they were just pretty much like, no, we can't take them. Um, so what I ended up doing. Uh, well, uh, let me rewind a second. The hotel manager started calling me saying, hey, this guy is standing outside his room setting stuff on fire. I can saying crazy stuff to uh, other customers. I can't have him doing this. You need to get him out of here as soon as possible. So what I ended up doing is I went down to the courthouse um, and I and I explained to them what I had going on. And I asked them, how do I go about filing a motion to have the state take custody of this individual? So so the fourth floor would have to take him uh, because it would be court ordered by a judge. Um, so file that motion. That motion went to uh, in front of a judge, a judge assigned. A lot, oh, I, I, I don't really want to drop too many names, but uh, 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 the judge assigned an organization to uh, to do an evaluation on this individual. Uh, and, you know, when I say he had severe mental health problems, he had severe mental health problems. It was easy to see. Uh, no, you, you didn't have to do no detective work to, to see this. I met with the, the veteran multiple times and every time I met with him, it was the exact same thing. Uh, the organization met with him and they determined nothing, nothing at all. They told the judge he was fine. He answered all their questions. Good to go. Um, uh, so that veteran had to get out of that hotel. Couldn't come to the mission because he set the mission on fire it's not safe to house him because, you know, he obviously has an issue of setting things on fire. Where does he go? You know? Uh, so I, I, I pretty much had to force feed him into the hospital so they would take him. And, you know, I, I, I to be honest with you, uh, the last time I took him to the hospital, I, I haven't heard from him since. So I don't know what happened to him, but we, we frequently face those challenges, and, and I know it's hard to deal with people that's cussing at you, fussing at you, because I deal with people like that all the day. My case managers come get me and say, this guy's cussing me out, and, you know, I, I, I'm the relief to take, take the, the, the yelling and fussing. So I understand, uh, you know, our, our few organizations that we have here, you know, probably necessarily don't want to deal with that. But, I mean, you know, that, that, that's kind of a part of our job. So. So, yeah, we we have all kinds of barriers here and all kinds of uh, problems. But I think the, the most beneficial thing here uh, uh, to, to do here in Fairbanks would be open up a real shelter with low barriers, very, very, very low barriers, you know, with enough funding to hire staff that's trained and professionals uh, in whether it's psychology, mental health, uh, social workers, um, and 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 that could be a place for not only veterans but for everyone to go to yeah thanks for that nico and i think that goes right along with your the question that you had put in the chat if you want to ask natalia um let me see uh, well, let me see. I, I i have to look back professor i didn't do so much talking <laughs> any recommendations on how to promote positivity while being patient with clients because you were just talking about difficult you know, that might be presented yeah, as difficult. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think, well, for me, supervision is really, really, really important. Um, so, so supervision, having a good supervisor, I actually have two different types of supervision. I go to my direct supervisor and I also, um, we have someone that we're con that's contracted out, um, 
who's done, who has more experience doing the type of work that I do, because my direct supervisor um, is more um, programmatic stuff. Um, and so that's really helpful, you know, having a super, going to supervision of someone who has the experience. Um, and also one thing that I went to a training when I first started working in the field back in San Francisco, um, and they had this handout, I don't know, and they told us to pick out a sentence or a quote that resonated with us. And we were supposed to actually like cut it and take it to our office. And I never did, but I, it always stayed with me. And the quote said something like, uh, where a client ends up is none of our business. Uh, we are just a, a part of their journey, a resource, a tool on their journey. But what happens to them at the end of the day is, is none of our business, it's theirs. Um, so, so that helps me as well, because sometimes we get, we do get, even if we're, we're aware of it and we, we try not to do it, we still get in the savior complex where we feel this responsibility on our shoulders that, right, like you're the supervisor when your case manager needs help, now you gotta step in, you gotta handle it. You gotta handle this one client that no one else wants to handle. So. Yeah. We still have that savior complex ingrained in us and remembering that our role is to be a resource and a tool in someone's journey. Um, the Whatever happens to them on their journey is it's it's not on us. It's not ours to change. We're you know, it's their business. And, and it's not connected to our. Our our worth and our value. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks Nico for, for all the context that you added. Thanks for the good question. No problem. Um, Natalia, uh, looking at it from the other side, um, th and this, I've, I've been in the social work field for a long time. So I've had a lot of highs and lows, a lot of success stories and a lot of failures. Uh, but when I just going back to the when I worked at the at the methadone clinic in, in Honolulu, I, I quit and I moved out of the state for two years and I came back to Honolulu. And uh, I really liked a lot of those uh, folks that I worked with at the clinic, a lot of the, the those those folks that were using opioids for a variety of reasons. I don't have time to go into all the stories there. But when I came back to the island, you know, I was really hoping that I would see them around and that I could talk to them, you know. Um, and see how they're doing and, and whatever. And I, I was teaching adjunct at uh, downtown, uh, downtown Hawaii Pacific University campus. And so I was down there every day where, you know, a lot of uh, folks uh, hang out. And I'd have to say that I ran into, I think, four individuals that I was close to uh, when I was working at the, at the facility. And they were all much worse off. And they were all had physical ailments. They all had negative stories. They were all very happy to see me and kind to me, but their stories behind what had happened to them in two years was bad. All four of them. I'm not saying it happened to every single person that's there, but all four of them had went downhill since the last time I saw them. And uh, that's hard, you know, and that's, that's just a small example, but that, that's a relevant one here. It can be hard to see failures or see people continue to, to go down a spiraling, a path of hopelessness, to see their bodies fail them, to see them become arrested, to see them relationships break off. That was another thing is those four people that I met 
that I was talking about, they were all friends when I knew them before, and they all hated each other the next time I saw them for various reasons that it, things that went down. Um, so my question to you, Natalia, is how do you get through it all? Like, how do you um, ground yourself and how do you maintain your, I don't know, your emotional composure uh, over time, you know, when you deal, or I guess, you know, because I know who you are, Natalia, and I know you care about these individuals. So how, how do you take care of yourself dealing with, uh, you know, when you're dealing with homelessness and addiction, you're going to see a lot of, I don't want to characterize them as failures, but you see a lot of uh, negative circumstances take place, I guess I would say. So how do you take care of yourself through all that and make sure that you're okay? I wish I had a good answer for you, but I don't. I, I, I've been really struggling, as you know, um, and um, I, I'm not doing very well at taking care of myself. I actually am proud to say that um, I, I've, I'm going to start working part-time soon this month. I'm, I'm going to decrease my work hours so that I have more time to myself because what I find is that I'm giving so much to to the people that I work with that I'm left with no energy for myself or even my family. So um, something that I'm doing is cutting back on my hours. Um, and, um, and I know that's, I don't even know if it's sustainable for me, but, um, and I know that's not sustainable for a lot of people. Um, but something else that I, I take honor in and that I try to remember is there is such an honor in doing this work and hearing people's stories and having them tell you things that they maybe don't get to tell anyone else because no one else will listen. Um, no one else really cares. Um, no one else can hold space without judgment. And so when people die, you know, I recently had a, Two, two deaths of people that I worked with. Um, one of them was a suicide. And um, just holding on to that honor of, of getting to know someone in that sort of way and, and, and the honor of knowing that I was able to provide that space um, and, and just trying to hold on to that. But yeah, it is really difficult and I, and, and I don't have a good answer for you. <laughs> I wish that I did. You gave me a good answer. You gave me the chills with that last thing that you just said about honoring the, you know, the time that you had, the space that you were able to share with them or however you said it. it makes me think, you know, I am, I'm very honored to, even though those four individuals had gone downhill since the last time I'd seen them, I'm very honored to, uh, to have shared some positive space with them at some point in, in many of their lives that are full of, you know, darkness and, and uh, you know, all the negativities in life. So, you make me like just reflecting on that. It gave me the chills and I'm happy that I had that time to, to share that space to share with them at that. So, so thank you for that. Um, I think we should, in the sense of time, we're a little past where I expected us to be. So let's get to these questions in the, in the chat. And if you have any, feel free to call in or, or, or add some more right now. Um, let's see, Kim, she asks, uh, would you say that when doctors prescribe opioids with Narcan, they're considered enablers of harm reduction? Uh, enablers of harm reduction. Uh, they're, they're, you know, I, I, I just get rid of the word enabler. Enabling, I just, it's just not in my mind. It's, it's not part of my way of thinking. 
Um, but I did see like memes once, right? As a harm reduction, I enable people to live, right? When when we're um, giving someone Narcan, right? We're enabling them to breathe because what happens with opioids is your system, your central nervous system starts shutting down and you stop breathing and then that's how people die. But with Narcan, um, it helps them start, start breathing again and, and come back to life. So it's enabling people to live. It's enabling them to have a second chance to even possibly recover from their opioid use disorder. Uh, and it's enabling them to to manage their substance use disorder so that they can manage other parts of their life when they're when they're getting prescriptions like methadone or buprenorphine. But I personally just don't that that word enabling is sort of out of my out of my brain, not part of my vocabulary. And we, we, yeah, I think it's interesting. Because we use it, we use it for substance use only, and it comes from that traditional enabling codependency. And with harm reduction, we see things a little bit differently. So we wouldn't say that we're enabling someone's cancer or we're enabling someone's diabetes, right? If we um, hand them a lighter to smoke their cigarette or allow them to smoke in our presence, if they have, like, let's say, lung cancer, or if they have diabetes, and you know, we share a piece of cake with them or a cookie, right? We're not the word enabling doesn't come to mind. So enabling also is is part of that stigmatized substance use. Uh, yeah, and it's kind of used with shame, you know, versus if you really look at, to use the word that you told me not to use, but enabling, um, what enables uh, addiction and substance abuse is capitalism, poverty, lack of connection. Those are the things, you know, that produce addiction uh, if we really want to look at it, not these little petty things. Uh, anyways, all right, so we got Willow also. She said, uh, going back to the policy of releasing people uh, who have relapsed with a simple referral, in this case, is there a service or organization that can serve as the middleman for these individuals? Someone to help them either find another facility with availability or perhaps re-examine the actual rehabilitation method the individual is experiencing and see if it is a good fit. Yeah, well, that's where case management comes into play. That would be the case manager's role, but the issue is that case managers, you know, we're all understaffed, overworked, our caseloads are too big. So a case manager is usually not able to, oh, answer the phone, you just got kicked out of treatment, let me come rush to get you real quick. Um, ideally, that will work out sometimes. Um, but then the the bigger issue is that there's there's no treatment on demand. There's no, um, as Nico was saying, there's no, you don't just walk into a program and they take you in right away. There's this whole application process and wait lists. So even if there was some sort of um, program that did this, we wouldn't be able to get treatment. We, we The person wouldn't get into treatment right away, which is a, a whole separate issue in itself. But I, a lot of it also has to do with staff being really, I mean, at burnout, underpaid, undertrained, lots and lots of issues relating to this. Yeah. All right. Mark asks, what does the family coping look like with harm reduction? Can the family come to a realization faster or have you seen a difference in any way? Mm, not sure what they mean. Family coping with harm reduction, like a uh, family being more open to needle exchange or accessing services. I'm not sure. Mark, you want to clarify in the chat or you can, you're welcome to buzz in too. 
Yeah, and Kim agrees with you. Manage is a better word than enabler for sure. No worries, Kim. Just be conscious of it. Yeah, we're all we're all um, learning. Okay, we to got be more mindful of our language. It's language is always evolving. Sure. All right, we got Mark here. Mark, you hear us? Yeah. So the harm reduction, basically family coping is, so I was thinking, you know how families traditionally cope with uh, your traditional ways right now, like someone goes into rehab, they cope on their own, they see them every once in a while, everything like that. Have you seen a difference in that with a harm reduction? Do, are they are they more apt to help the person because they, and they also come to the realization of, hey, he's, he or she is not going to stop, but we can help him in a little bit in this way or that, you know, that in, in that kind of way, how they can cope a little bit in that way. And kind of, if, if you look at it with the opiates, in the way, give them their own hug without the drug giving the hug, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, family support is really, really important when it comes to someone's recovery. I mean, right, healing is, is going to happen more with it, it, with other people as opposed to individually. Um, but with that said, you know, uh, families also need to set their own boundaries or have set their own boundaries. And, right. and that's also valid of, of them doing what it is they need to do to take care of themselves. Um, I personally don't really work with families. I remember I had a mom, um, I, I was working at a stabilization facility and I, I was working with someone who's pretty young and their mom was on the phone and wanted um, me to sort of approve that this part, they were gonna pay for the rent if they stopped using drugs. That was sort of the agreement. And I said, okay, well, first of all, I, I can't, I can't be a part of this agreement. Like I can't vouch right, that your right. child is not gonna use drugs, but also it's like, do you want to pay for their rent or not? Because whether they use drugs, that, that's out of your control, but you can pay for the rent or you cannot. That that should be something uh, or can be something that is not based upon their substance use. Their right. substance use is probably going to get worse if they go to the street, though, or if they have to go into the survival mode of, of engaging in other risky behaviors for shelter, like uh, like sex or something like that. But yeah. Uh, that's that, that's, that's kind of like what I was getting at is like, did, did you see like with yeah. that drug use and the harm reduction, knowing with, with like a parent saying that, Hey, uh, they're, you're, you're kind of saying, yeah, they're probably not going to stop using, but have you seen with a harm reduction, do you think families would be more apropos to like, Hey, stop or I will, like you said, give you or, or I'll help you out with the apartment. Are they yeah. more apt to do it or have, have you seen that type of thing? So I don't really, I don't, I don't work with families. I don't talk to families. Right. I do get a lot of phone calls from people who are concerned and those are actually really difficult phone calls for me when someone's calling right. about their child um, or adult, adult child. Um, but I was trained by two people uh, in the Bay Area who have a harm reduction, uh, this harm reduction treatment center. Um, their names are Jeannie Little and Pat Denning. They have a book called 
uh, harm reduction psychotherapy and another book called Over the Influence that are really, really good. And I know that they were providing, um, I think, support groups for family members um, of loved ones. So almost like Al-Anon, but not 12 step based. It was much more harm reduction. And in the book, um, they do describe some stories where they worked with families and rent, rent was one of the ones that came up, right? Is because we, we don't want people on the streets. And so that is an option, right? Is to pay for someone's rent despite of their substance use, because in this traditional disease model, there's a lot of like, we need to let the person hit rock bottom and we don't want to be part of this codependent relationship, but really, you know, if we're waiting for someone to hit rock bottom, we're, we're potentially leave them out there to, to die. Right, right. And shelter well, is so, so, so important. Yeah. I'm sorry, I don't have much experience. No, it, it's fine. You, 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 you pretty much answered it. It's just in a, in a roundabout way, you know. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Mark. All right. Can I say? Um, well, I think can I say one more thing? Our... No. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, you know, I did not mention. Um, I do want to acknowledge that it's Pride Month, and I did not really touch on HIV. But because the the harm reduction, the syringe exchange, really came out of trying to prevent the spread of HIV, harm reduction services are often closely tied to. Uh, LGBT, I say LGBT plus community issues. Um, and of course, HIV does not only affect the LGBT community, but um, it was initially uh, associated or called like the, the on quotation marks, gay man's disease. It was really stigmatized because people associated it with, uh, with homosexuality. And so I, I do want to acknowledge that a lot of the work that I do also revolves around preventing the spread of HIV and safer sex practices, you know, condoms and lube, those are harm reduction supplies um, and, and some other interventions that we can have because a lot of people who use meth also uh, have a lot of sex while they're using meth or, or use some other substances. So those are other ways that we can talk about other harm reduction interventions. Uh, making sure that people are using condoms or lube or whatever it is they need to do to be safe or, or if they're exchanging sex for other for other goods or for drugs or for shelter. Um, and so I, I also just want to acknowledge that it is Pride Month and, and a lot of people, I, I work with a lot of uh, specifically gay men, but, you know, I also work with some trans people and, and uh, you know, other members of the community. And, and I do want to acknowledge that, that this is, they also face a lot of stigma with or without the substance use and a lot of really similar issues. A lot of them have been kicked out of their homes, have been shunned from their families, end up on the streets, um, experience a lot of that trauma, a lot of that stigma. And so I, I also really wanted to acknowledge acknowledge some of those similarities in, in honor of Pride Month. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, we were going to, we did intend to talk more on HIV and we just, the conversation went where it went. So sorry we didn't, um, get to that, but it's an important topic. Another thing you can look at is last week's episode. We talked a little bit more about LGBTQ plus issues. Um, but so, yeah, I thank you for bringing that up. It's very important. Um, it seemed like there was something else I was going to say, but I forgot. It slipped my mind. Um, yeah. So I got a final question. We go to the, the critical side of things, uh, but it's, it's pretty simple. Um, for, it's a two part question. So one, like we mentioned, like there's all these naysayers about harm reduction 
you know, typically using that word enable would be would be the word that they would, would be used, um, which I disagree with. But so the first part is that, you know, how do you how do you respond to people? I know it's not your job to convince the world, but on the other hand, you are knowledgeable about it. And so, you know, how do you respond when people bring up, uh, you know, that their concerns when often they're those concerns themselves are irrational or they don't make sense? Um, how do you how, how do you invite people to look at it, look deeper, maybe? And then, you know, what those of us that uh, are interested in harm reduction or maybe want to go into the field and work in substance use, work with those that are struggling with substance use, substance abuse, you know, what advice would you give them to to explore harm reduction more? Um, you know, do you have any any resources available or any strategies or, you know, where where would they go for a for a bigger window into that? Um, yeah. Well, in regards to naysayers, I really don't find myself around people that <laughs> I don't find myself around people very often anyway, but people who do, who have opposing views as me. Um, if I have, I think I might make like a small comment or I might just not respond. It really depends on how much energy I have to educate and, uh, you know, I might mention some of the work that I do and the importance of it, but usually I think people are hesitant to discuss it with me. If I do say something, um, it kind of shuts them up in a way. Um, or if they're interested, you know, I can go on and on and on and on about this stuff forever. Um, but it's also just that confidence and knowing like, you know, you can, you can talk you can say what what you're gonna say about people who are on the streets, people who are who are actively, you know, chaotically using substances, shooting up drugs, uh, part of the LGBT community. You can say what you want to say, but I I confidently know, right? I talk to these people every day, like I know what's up. So um, it, it's also acknowledging that like this person doesn't really know what they're talking about. They're just judging from whatever they've been taught to judge, but really they don't know. Um, and so I just hold on to that. Um, and for someone who is interested in joining the field, I would say, don't just kidding. <laughs> um, I'd say, you know, just remember that we're not here to save anyone. <laughs> you're a resource, you're a tool. Um, you're here to help people find their own way. Um, but you know, if you're really interested in harm reduction, there's so much on YouTube, Dr. Carl Hart, um, Gaber Mate, Pat Denning, oops, sorry, my phone's falling, Pat Denning and, um, Jeannie Little are really great. Um, if you want to reach out to me, you know, you can through Christian, because like I said, I can go on about this stuff all day, but you know, just follow your heart. And if something inside doesn't feel like it's right, something doesn't align um, you're probably right. And you, you know, you never know, you might find something else out there that's better or create something that's better. And, and I say, go for it. Thanks. And I had, a, I remembered my thought, um, just a moment ago when we were talking about, you know, um, drug users, HIV, whatnot. And you mentioned things that can be uncomfortable for certain people in their values, gay sex, anal sex, lubrication, condoms, intravenous drug use, a lot of other things that go that sometimes go along with, with drug use. And my advice um, to folks that are listening, and if those things challenge you, because even to me to this day, certain things kind of like 
they feel, I don't know how to use the word, but a little bit, you know, I, I, I don't literally think this, but this is how it comes across in my initial reaction sometimes is that's kind of weird. Um, and the best thing that I believe that we can do is challenge those beliefs. Why do we feel, why do you feel that way? Is there things that you were told or, you know, your parents spoke a certain way that it causes you angst when you hear it or you cause like, look at your physical reaction, things like that. And just challenge yourself and ask yourself why you think, why does something make you uncomfortable? And ask yourself, how are you going to respond if somebody talks to you about those things later, um, you know, when you're, when you're a clinician or whatever, whatever you go on to be? Um, just challenge yourself. Dig deeper in that regard. Um, we're all, we'll all be better. It'll make you better. It'll make the people you work with better. It'll help everybody out. That's, to me, that's the, one of the best things that we can do. Um, so, Natalia, it's been a pleasure. I'm so glad that you came back on. I feel like this has been one of the most fruitful episodes as far as information we had a lot of storytelling we gave a lot of context for folks um thanks to the guests that called in as well but um and that that left questions in the chat i really appreciate your engagement uh but mostly natalia i want to thank you you know it's it's been a pleasure to, to talk with you it's been a pleasure to know you over the years you know we've been back and forth and different paths same paths here and there but um i really appreciate the connection i really appreciate you taking the time to bless us with your wisdom your knowledge your experience all of that I appreciate you taking the time to answer the students' questions, things like that. Um, and I hope we can get on here and talk. You know, like I said, we can go on some of these subjects and go real deep on, uh, on any one of those angles. So I hope we can, we can do it again. Um, but, yeah, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thanks for coming on. And please give my regards to your son and, and to, to King Tui as well. Thank you so much. Thanks. You have any last? No, yeah, just thank you. You know, I'm really here for the students. When I heard you were doing substance use and and you were interested in harm reduction, I was like, oh man, I got I gotta go. I, I love talking about this stuff. I love um, sharing the knowledge that I have because I I know how how helpful it was for me in, in my practice. And so thanks for allowing me to come on and, and ramble about this stuff because I love it and I think it's really really important. Yeah, well, like I said, we appreciate it. Um, just from the feedback from the, the folks that were online, I can tell that is a very positive episode. So look forward to getting more feedback. And like I said, I'll put it all integrated into the harm reduction section of the class later, and I'll update you, you know, if, if there's blogs written on it and, and whatnot. So, all right, that is it for this episode. Um, you can find the episodes right here on call-in app if you want the video. This should be available pretty quick, within an hour usually, not always. Um, there's sometimes technical difficulties. But also uh, later in the day, it will be uploaded to Apple and Spotify. Again, leave us a review if you listen on there. You're tuning in uh, via one of those uh, methods. Uh, I'll be broadcasting here next week at 10 a.m. I'm not going to give you a preview on the artist because it's a little bit in the air. Um, I have a few options that are, that are circulating around. So tune in next week, uh, 10 a.m. Alaska time. And uh, the Critical Social Works, a collaborative effort between the University of Alaska Fairbanks Department of Social Work and a Conscious Party Productions. And this episode was hosted by me, Christian Ace Stetler.
This has been a Conscious Party production brought to you by the University of Alaska Fairbanks Department of Social Work. You have been listening to The Critical Social Worker, our revolutionary storytelling podcast. Your story, my story, 